And uh, as they're doing that, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to start looking at verse 18 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, those words will be on the screen in just a few minutes. But as we begin today, I want to say this. I want to say that the passage that we're looking at today is particularly challenging, especially in today's day and age. And, uh, and I, I want to preface this message today by letting you know that I do have an agenda and uh, my guess is that some of you have wondered that at different times. You've probably wondered in different places whether or not I have an agenda. Um, and the answer is yes, I do. I have an agenda. But it's not political. Um, and I think the vast majority of folks who have past, I've pastored the last 25 years, they would attest to me not having a political agenda. Um, my agenda is also not personal. I don't stand up here week after week with some sort of personal, uh, personal objective or selfish aim. I do this, I stand up here out of obedience. Um, and my, my agenda, if you wanna know what my agenda is, my agenda is to take the Bible, which I believe is inspired by God, and I wanna unpack it, and I wanna explain it, and I want to apply it the best I possibly can, being true to what God has given us, and to try to do it every week in 35 minutes or less. So that's my agenda. Uh, I, I don't simply want to bring the Bible to life. I want to bring it to bear in our lives. And I don't want to just talk about the way of Jesus. I want us to live the way of Jesus. That's my agenda. And I say all of this in advance of this because the passage we're going through today is going to be particularly challenging. And it would be really easy for anyone in the room today to listen to something that I say and, and make assumptions about my agenda. Or maybe they listen to things I don't say and try to fill in the gaps about my agenda. And so that's why I want you to be really, really clear about why I'm here or my desire anytime I stand here and teach. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, before we start reading, let me also say this. Some people want the verses that we're looking at today to be about something that they're not about. And, and what I've found is that my experience proves those to be mostly Christians, that they look at these verses and they think, well, this is about this thing and we need to talk about this issue and this is the idea behind it. And then there are others who look at these verses and they find them so troubling, they disagree with them, that they choose to either skip them or just disregard them completely and so they dismiss what these verses say. But let me say this, nobody wants these verses to mean what they really mean. And talking about what it really means is not exactly going to be a crowd pleaser. So I'm just going to give you a heads up in front of this. Um, because what this is really about is something that none of us actually want to hear. Uh, I, I recently was uh, been asking this question of a lot of different groups, but I've been asking the question, what does it feel like to be wrong? What does it feel like when you're wrong? And it's interesting because uh, so many people answer along the same lines. They say things like, well, I feel shame or I feel anger. I feel frustration. I, I maybe feel unintelligent. And, uh, and I let people answer that question, but that's actually the, the wrong answer to the question because being wrong actually feels exactly like being right. When you're, when you're wrong about something or when you're wrong about someone, you don't know you're wrong about them until somebody points it out. And so up until that point, until someone tells you feeling wrong or being wrong feels exactly like being right. You can't tell the difference until somebody tells you you're wrong. And here's something that I've learned about people. Nobody likes being told that they're wrong. <laughs> Nobody does, right? I mean, if you are that person, we'd love to meet you because none of us like to be wrong, right? Imagine this. Uh, imagine that like we haven't seen each other for a while. Maybe, 
Maybe we haven't seen each other ever. That's the situation with Paul in the Roman church. He writes this letter. We're looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. He's never met them before. So he writes them this letter. But imagine that you and I haven't seen each other for a while. Caleb, imagine I haven't seen you for a while. And I see you. I come up to you and I go, Caleb, man, so good to see you. And you're like, oh, man, so good to see you, Brad. And so, you know, we kind of exchange pleasantries. And then I say, hey, man, can I talk to you about something? And you're like, sure, man, for whatever, whatever it is. And I go, Caleb, I need to tell you, you're wrong. And not just a little wrong, you are really wrong, like a lot. You are wrong a, a lot of the time. Oh, and by the way, you're not just wrong, you're also bad. <laughs> not just kind of bad, but Caleb, you are really, really bad. Like you are bad, right? This is not exactly the way to win friends and influence people, is it? You don't start by telling people you're wrong or by telling people that you're bad. And yet the Apostle Paul does this. He starts this letter to the Roman people and right at the very beginning, he starts talking about how wrong we are as people. And so you have to ask the question, could it really be that bad? And isn't faith supposed to be uplifting and inspiring and good and light and wonderful? Why in the world would you start this way? And here's the deal. These aren't just words on a page. This isn't just uh, an ancient letter that people find interesting. This is the inspired word of God. So in other words, what's written, what we read and what we look at is not accidental and not just interesting. It's not just good literature. It is the truth of God and what he says about humanity and the reality of our situation with him. And it starts in a really heavy place. So why, if you're trying to encourage people to have faith, would you begin in such a seemingly negative way? Could it be that there's actually good in the bad news? Could it be that there's good news about being Caleb, being bad? Sorry, Caleb. You can, you can take it out on him after church today, right? We're gonna read something that we don't talk about much these days, and we're gonna walk through these verses, and, and, and we don't talk about this much these days, but even though we don't talk about it these days, it's just as true these days as it was those days. So verse 18, this is how Paul begins this section of the letter. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 18, that's how it starts. Paul kind of makes us aware of something. And it's sort of like that moment when you sit down with somebody you're close to and they say, hey, can I chat with you about something? And you think that you're on perfectly good terms. And so you begin to talk and share. And then finally they stop and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. And you realize, oh wait, things aren't as good between us as I thought they were. Has this ever happened to you? Or like, we're fine. And then they start, they start saying, oh, no, but there's this thing you did or there's this thing you said. And for the past year or two years or 10 years, I've been holding this thing in my heart. And you're sitting there and there's this party that's like, I can't believe this is happening. Now our tendency as people is to get defensive in those moments, right? Somebody says something, you're like, no, no, we're fine. In fact, that's not my issue. That's your issue, whatever. We'll do all sorts of things to evade that. But... If we care about the person, if we love the person, if the, if the relationship's meaningful, then we'll lean in and listen to what they have to say. Paul essentially is telling us this same thing. We might think we're fine with God, like we're just cruising along and God says, no, no, he says, no, hold on. God has something that, that you need to understand. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In other words, there's something going on between humanity and God and it's time to talk about it. 
Now, now the Greek word that he uses for wrath is the word orge, and it's an emotive word. It's wild. It's, it's a fury. It's, it, it means this. It means that God is just not like mildly annoyed with humanity. Like he's just tilting down his glasses and saying like, you kids quit running around the pool. You know, it's not that. This is anger. But it's not because it's God's general disposition to be angry. God isn't just generally grumpy or irritable, in a bad mood. This verse actually points to something that's very specific. There's a reason that this is happening, right? It says his anger burns toward men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress. There's a word picture that's being painted for us here. It's like this. It's like there's this idea or there's this thing called truth that's over here in our lives. And what he's describing is that humanity, you and I, we do this all the time. There are truths that we try to shove down. We try to keep them hidden away. We hide them underneath the couch. We sweep them underneath the rug. And we try to keep these truths over here and we shove them away because they're inconvenient for the way that we're living our lives. And so we suppress it. We smash it down. We hide it. And we come back to our life and we start living and then we look over our shoulder and there it is again. And it's this truth that keeps cropping up. It's this thing that keeps happening. And so we keep coming back to it and we shove it away again. We suppress it. We make it go away. That's what Paul is describing, that there are truths about God and humanity, things that are true about who God is. And we have this tendency to shove them away. I don't want to talk about it. There are truths about who we are as people. We go, no, I don't want to hear about it. There are things that are characteristic of our relationship with God, and we go, no, no, I don't want to deal with those sorts of things. We suppress, and God's wrath increases. And as I said earlier, the typical human response is to either be defensive or to evade responsibility. We don't know, I don't, I don't do that all the time, right? But hold on a second, God, wait a second. I try to make excuses. When my girls were younger, I'd send them to clean their rooms, you know, send them in, go clean your room. A little while later, they'd be done, call me in for the inspection. You know what that's like? And I go in and like their bed is made in the middle of a war zone. Like, <laughs> this isn't clean, right? And I would say to my girls, this isn't clean. Like, you didn't do this, this, and this. Well, you didn't tell me to do those things. I did when I told you to clean your room. I meant all of it, not just make the bed, right? And they, but dad, you know, they do the but dad thing, right? They evade. Paul moves forward and answers us before we can even utter the words, but dad, Verse 19, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. We are without excuse. He's saying, listen, enough of God has been revealed in the world that we see, the created universe. We call this, by the way, general revelation. So much of it has been revealed for us to be guilty. I, I once read an article. It was about a, a woman who was an atheist and she was intentionally raising her son to also be an atheist. And in this interview, uh, the person interviewing her was asking her some details of why and when did this start and why were you intentional with it? And she says, my son at a certain point in his childhood began questioning the existence of or inquiring to me about God. And she said, I had never spoken of God in my home. There weren't any family members that had spoken to, to him about God and suddenly he just began asking questions about God. And so she said, I was tempted at first to let him be on his own journey but then when I realized where that was headed, I trained him in a specific way and led him there. I remember reading the article and I thought to myself, did you ever stop and wonder why your, your child, with no prompting, 
with no one ever speaking a word, had this sense that there was something eternal in his heart? Why did your child, did you ever wonder, like, why in a world that you have created that is godless, why would your child begin to wonder, is there a God and can we know him? Paul is describing the reality that we suppress the truth. From the innocence of a child to a majestic peak to a sunset over the ocean, we don't have to look very far. We don't have to think very long. And your heart and your mind, they will turn to God and what is true. But then almost immediately, we will begin to shove those things away. Maybe you wonder, well, how do we do that? How do we suppress the truth? What do you mean by that? Paul also paints a very vivid picture and, and clear understanding of this, and he shows us this pattern that exists, and I want to show it to you as well. Three times a very specific word is used, three times, and it's followed three times by a reference to how God responds to what we do. So three times he uses this word, and three times he says God does this in response to this. Three times the word that he uses is the word exchange. We trade we swap. That's the way he describes our suppression. We exchange something. Uh, we have something, something that's good, something that's beautiful, something that's true. And it's like we approach the counter and we go, you know what? I'd like to exchange this for something that isn't as good, isn't as true, and isn't as wonderful. It's like a, if you had a paid for uh, brand new car, it'd be like going to a dealership and getting a 79 pacer with a payment. That's what we're talking about here, right? Some of you don't know what a 79 pacer is, but look it up and you'll know why I said it. Paul says, listen, you exchange something good for something that isn't good, something that absolutely isn't. So the first exchange we start to read in verse 21, he says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the first exchange, the first way that we suppress is with our minds, our intellect. We knew God. We have knowledge of God, but we become futile in our thinking and our hearts go dark. He goes on to say, we, we claim to be wise, but then we become fools. We exchange what we know to be true about God for what we think should be true about God. What does that mean? Well, it means we remake God in our own image. We decide, we decide this is what's true of God. We limit God. We define God. We make the decision that, that in order for us to trust God, then he has to make sense to us. So in our wisdom, we think deeply. We explore philosophically. We answer existential questions. But then eventually we begin to recategorize God in a way that makes sense to us, we exchange the truth about God for our own ideas about what should be true of him. So how many times have you heard somebody say, I just can't believe in a God who, and then they fill in the blank. Or they say, my God, my God isn't like that. And they describe the difference. Or I won't believe in a God who doesn't make sense to me. Doesn't make sense to who? to you, we exchange in our minds what we knew to be true about God for what we think is reasonable. I think I'd probably know better than God. So God, I'm going to tell you who you are instead of allowing you to tell me who you are. And so we become the place where truth ends and where truth begins. We exchange this. We exchange 
Then the next exchange has to do with our worship. Verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their, their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So when deciding what is true is left to us, what do we do? Well, then we start looking for meaning. We start looking for purpose. Worship is hardwired into us. We are beings who require our lives to be invested in a particular direction. We will worship something. We will worship someone. We long to be satisfied with something other than ourselves, which is, by the way, why idolatry exists. But we're not talking about wooden images or, or marble carvings. We're talking about anything in our life that we place our trust in, anything that we determine to be an ultimate thing, something that we have to have, that's idolatry. And we do that. We worship those things with our time and our energy and our money, with our, our, our resources, our thoughts. We worship things hoping they'll satisfy this deeper thing that's in our heart. Cars and houses and jobs, identity, education, relationships, anything just hoping it'll fill the void. And when we do that, we're exchanging worship of the creator for worship of the creation, the things that are here. And no wonder we're empty. By the way, I told you today was going to be fun, didn't I? <laughs> we exchanged what was true for our own intellect. We exchanged the worship of God, because you can't worship a God you disagree with, for the worship of things around us. And then Paul says this, the third exchange, we exchange what is true for what we feel is true. So verse 26, he says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now Paul, Paul right here is using the most challenging example he could possibly use in describing this final exchange. But it's not for the reason that you might think. Um, some people think this is challenging because, oh, this is a really sensitive subject in our culture but it's always been a sensitive subject. That's not what makes this difficult. Let, let me explain what makes this difficult and what Paul's doing here. There is no place in our lives where the line between what feels right and what is right is more difficult to discern than issues of sexuality. Um, th there are a lot of areas of life where um, something might feel right but then there's also like this simultaneous thing. You're like, this, no, this feels, this feels right. But then there's a simultaneous thing where you're like, eh, but I also have a sense that this isn't right, you know. We do that sometimes. But then there are other areas where that perception is far more subtle and it's far more difficult to discern. And Paul picks this area, picks one of the most complicated examples of this. And, and I just want to explain this. Um, for a period of time, Sherry and I, um, we lived in a, in a community in Brooklyn that was a really, really high population of, of gay couples that lived in our neighborhood. These are people that we walked our dog with, um, people that we barbecued with, had them over to our house uh, for meals. They were our friends. In fact, I remember one evening, I was standing on the front step of our little brownstone that we lived in, and uh, some friends had gathered around, and we were just all chatting as we were coming home from work and different things. And I remember this moment of realizing... Um, <laughs> I'm the only person here that isn't gay. Like all the seven or eight people that were there were, were not straight and I was the only one that was standing there. And I share that to only simply say for a lot of people in my line of work, I have found that I've had more and continue to have more um, relationships with folks that are gay than most people in my job. That's just a, a, a fact of the matter. But it's not just the relationships. 
Uh, over the years, we've had some really honest, frank, open conversations about the reality of being gay. And, and here's what I've heard time and time again from my friends. The feelings are real. The feelings are real. The experiences that they've had, they're real. But the decision of what to do with those feelings is completely theirs. But the feelings are, are real and they're complicated. And the line between discerning or determining what is right and what feels right is so difficult to determine in that situation and in so many others. And so when Paul goes here in this letter, goes to this example, he chooses one of the most difficult examples to communicate one of the most devastating exchanges. We exchange what feels right for what is right. Think about how many times... Um, You've allowed your feelings to confuse matters. I'm not saying feelings aren't real, but think about the effects. Think about the times when feelings have overridden other situations. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say something like, well, it felt right at the time? Do you know when we say that? When we realize later it wasn't right and our feelings betrayed us. There are places where everything inside of us says something is right, the way it's supposed to be. All humans experience this. We exchange what is true for what we feel is true, and we suppress the truth. So what's the result? Well, there are three exchanges that Paul just showed us, and then three times Paul says, as a result, God gave them up. Look at the third time in verse 28. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God gave them up. I want to help you understand what this looks like and what Paul's describing in this language. Imagine that there's a man or a woman, and they're caught in a tumultuous river. They're being swept away, and somebody's there to rescue them, and they reach their arm out, and they're holding on to them. But this raging river is, is chaotic as the result of their own decisions, their own desires, their own choosing. And so he's fighting to hold them in the middle of this, but they continue to press against him. They want to release because the decisions they're making are making the river more tumultuous, more chaotic. And so they're fighting against him, and eventually he releases them to be consumed and carried away in the waters. That's the picture that Paul is painting. God gave them up. He held on. He grasped for them, but they continued to move in this direction, and so eventually he lets them go. He gives them up, and we will be swallowed up and consumed and overtaken. And so Paul continues, and he describes the, the culture around them, and it might as well be ours. Look at verse 29. He says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Do you know the toughest thing about this list? My name might as well be in it. <laughs> and yours too, right? There isn't one of us who can't find at least one thing in that list that isn't true of us at some point or another in our lives. And so in this one paragraph, you know what Paul does? He levels the playing field. 
all of us. We are all a part of this. We all are suppressing the truth. And you realize what he's also saying. This is bad. The situation, it's worse than you think. You, as much as our culture tells me that I can't say this to you or that you can't say it to me, you are wrong. Humanity is broken. Humanity is wrong. Which brings us back to this question. Why would anyone trying to encourage people toward a life of faith, why would you start with this? Uh, Back last December, right before Christmas, I signed up for uh, an Ironman this coming November, Ironman Arizona. And uh, it was more of a wake-up call than ambition for me. Uh, If I'm honest, I was kind of looking at the last four or five years and I realized my health and weight and everything else had just been on a slow but steady slide. And, uh, And then the pandemic hit and some people found the, you know, like the pandemic 15, I found like the pandemic 25. And, uh, and so I realized I was in this bad place. And so um, one morning I was just like, I got to do something. And I thought, what better way to fix this situation than choose like the hardest race on the planet to do and force yourself into it, you know? I mean, like sort of masochistic, but I thought I will scare myself into getting back into shape. And so I've been on a, a bit of a journey, but, but it reminded me of my brother Mike because it's something very similar happened to him back in 2009. So this is a while ago. He walked into his doctor's office and he was told by his doctor, you won't walk in this office in five years, you're gonna be dead. He was overweight, he was unhealthy, his blood pressure was off the charts, he was on all sorts of medication, headed for an early demise, that's what his doctor told him. And he realized the gravity of his situation. Just, I have a picture of him in 2009 just to show you. Um, he's not a big guy, he's not a tall guy. But he knew he had to do something. And I don't know if it runs in the family, because he did it first, not me, but he, um, he decided... I think I'm going to do an Ironman. <laughs> and, uh, and so over the next several months, he lost 60 pounds. He quit smoking, continued to work hard. Eventually, he got off of all of the blood pressure medications. He started competing in smaller triathlons. By the way, when he started, he told me, he said, I couldn't do 10 consecutive minutes on an elliptical trainer at the easiest setting. But after battling through some injuries and working year after year, in 2014, this is a picture of him. Crossing the finish line at Ironman Louisville. Five years later, he wasn't dead. Five years later, he's crossing a finish line at one of the hardest races in the world. So let me ask you this. If, if you called up my brother Mike right now and asked him if he would trade the life that he has for the life that he had, what do you think he would say? <laughs> Not a chance, right? Not a chance. And yet the only reason he got there was because somebody had the courage to point out just how bad things really were. And and, you know, strangely enough, that's the story of the cross. Paul's not done in his letter here, and and neither are we, and that's one of the challenges of walking through something like Romans because we break this up into weeks. But, But here we have to stop and we have to reflect on the cross because that's where Paul is headed. We are so broken that we can't even acknowledge our own brokenness. We feel right when we're actually wrong. Dallas Willard says it this way. He says we're flying, but we're flying upside down and we don't even realize it. And yet simultaneously, we are so loved, even in our broken condition, even in our wrongness, we're extended grace and forgiveness and peace with God. 
That's the good news of being bad. That the doorway to wholeness is unlocked when we actually admit our brokenness. Like the doorway, the pathway for you and I experiencing peace, the, the path, pathway for you and I to experience wholeness, the way that we actually begin to experience goodness, the way we actually cross that finish line is when we step through the doorway of admitting, you know what, I'm a broken person and I'm wrong and I don't get it right. That's the beginning, which is also why I believe the way we're closing today is incredibly important. Um, we're closing with communion today, and so if you've got that with you, I, I just encourage you to take it out right now and get it prepared. I believe this is why Jesus instituted communion, one of the many reasons, but I believe this is a significant one. See, every time, every time that I take the bread and let it pass my lips, every time that I take this cup and let it press against my lips, I'm recognizing in this single act that I'm not a Christian because it intellectually is congruent with my ideas. I, I'm not a Christian because it validates my feelings. Every time I take the bread and the cup, I'm reminded that I was swimming in a river formed by my own chaos and I needed a rescue. I'm a sinner who needed saving and I have a savior who did just that. So Jesus gathered with his disciples the night that he was betrayed and he said, after taking the bread and breaking it, this is my body that's broken for you. I want you to eat and remember me. Let's eat together. Then he took the cup. And he blessed it and he said, this is a new covenant. What he was saying was this. In all of your brokenness, there's a new way that God's gonna deal with humanity and it's based on love and grace and his acceptance. And so Jesus took the cup and he blessed it and he said, drink this and remember me. Let's drink together. Would you stand with me? Before I offer the benediction, <clears throat> let me just say, Caleb is not that bad of a guy. <laughs> He's actually pretty good. That's why I could pick him. But he is wrong. He is wrong. And so am I. And so are you. Amen? Amen. So may you be men and women who acknowledge the good in being bad. And may you be willing and free to admit your brokenness and your wrongness and step through that door towards life and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today.